Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. This is a weekly series in which I talk to leading professional investors about their investment approach and current thinking. This week we're switching focus from picking stocks in the UK market, last week's topic, to the much bigger issue of the global macroeconomic environment. I'm joined today to discuss that by Andrew Milligan, who is Head of Global Strategy at Aberdeen Standard Investments, and a long-standing contact of mine, whose commentary on markets I realise I've been following for more than 15 years. Aberdeen Standard Investments is the huge company recently formed by the merger between Aberdeen Asset Management and Standard Life Investments, and has now more than £580 billion of assets under management. It's a global investment giant in every sense of the word. Welcome, Andrew. Uh, I'd like to start, if I may, by asking you about the state of the world today, if you like. One of the most striking characteristics about the investment world at the moment is that the newspaper headlines are full of stories about Trump, about nuclear missiles, about all sorts of potentially threatening things. I haven't mentioned Brexit yet. And yet somehow the financial markets seem to be extraordinarily calm. Nothing seems to shake them. And that is reflected in the fact that volatility, at least as many people measure it, is at very low levels. Could you tell us why that is and what you think is the explanation for that? It is horrendously complicated to try to answer your question. I'd say there's several reasons why volatility is low. The first, of course, is let's not forget that we are in a most peculiar environment where central banks are, quotes, injecting liquidity, buying a phenomenal amount of assets and have been now for a whole number of years, you know, trillions each year. And of course, that does have a smoothing effect on a whole series of markets. But there are, I think, two other issues, one macro and one micro. The first is, you're absolutely right that there's a lot of political uncertainty in the world at present. But when one looks down at the macroeconomic environment, growth and inflation, what's fascinating is how each year now, for a number of years, the global economy has grown about 3 3.5%. Sure, there's cycles, but they're not marked cycles compared with past. It is now eight years since the last recession. Inflation keeps coming down and down and down. We're not seeing the inflation shocks, either deflation or inflation, that again we've seen in the past. So when you compare the macroeconomic environment of now with two, three decades back, it is actually a lot smoother. And historically, volatility is caused usually by macro shocks. The other, and this is a little more complicated, is the makeup, the composition of stock markets is currently changing. There was a period of time a few years ago when it was all risk on, risk off, and everything was moving exactly to the same beat. If you knew where the treasury market or the dollar was going to go at a period of time, everything else would move the same. But of course, that is changing now. What we're seeing is a rather more diversified, more fluid situation. The correlations between different stocks are changing compared with the past. When that happens, one of the side effects, actually, is that volatility is low for the index as a whole. But we are seeing more dispersion within stock markets, which, of course, is good for active stock pickers, fund managers or retail. So I'd say there's several reasons why volatility is where it is. The first is quantitative easing, but, of course, that will change over the next couple of years. The second is the macroeconomic environment, which might change over the next few years. And that, of course, is the big question for strategists like myself. And the third is the current composition and correlations between the equity market, which has changed with a few years back. Can volatility change? Can the VIX move up from, say, 10 to 12, where it is, to 2024? Absolutely. It'll change as and when central banks are making materially different decisions compared with what they're hinting at now. 
when the macroeconomic environment is wildly different, say 2.5% or 4.5% growth, not 3.5% growth, and when stock investors are looking at stocks in a very different way, then we will get the VIX index picking up or other measures of volatility, we're just using VIX as a shorthand here, will move very differently as well. So I think it's something that an investor needs to think about. Volatility will rise, undoubtedly, at some point in the future. The question is, what's caused it? Under what circumstances? Not necessarily when, but why is volatility moving higher? And that's what we've got to try to think about in terms of portfolio construction. Okay, so you raise a number of interesting points there. Let's take them um, in turn, if we may. First of all, on the central banks, uh, as you rightly say, we understand that the Federal Reserve in America is going to start withdrawing some of its support that it has been putting into the market and maybe raising interest rates again. For the last few years, though, most of the people in the financial markets don't seem to have believed them when they said they were going to take action. Do you think that's going to change now? I mean, do you personally believe that they will do what they said they're going to do? And if so, do you think other investors are going to take that on board as well? Or is it out of their control, in fact? I think we are at a turning point in the monetary cycle. And the reason for that is that the global economic environment is different to what it was in 13 or 15, say. We are, for the first time really since the financial crisis, seeing a synchronised upturn in the European bloc as a whole, the Asian Chinese bloc as a whole, and the North American bloc as a whole, right across the world. And we're beginning to see some synchronised improvement in capital spending, synchronised upturns in global trade. I emphasise that this is still at a very moderate level because there are lots of depressing aspects of of the world economy, restraining activity from from picking up to the sorts of figures we saw before the crisis. But nevertheless, it is synchronised. And although inflation is a lot lower than central banks would like to see, I think collectively the central banks are saying to themselves, against this sort of synchronised backdrop, with the fact that they know that they are manipulating financial markets, distorting financial prices, they are very aware of the sizable build-up in debt. China most obviously, but consumer credit in the UK, auto loans in America, you know, there's pockets of debt in lots of countries which central bankers are worried about. And yes, on their models, which have been wrong for the last couple of years, but they keep refining the models. And it still says that in two years' time, inflation will be picking up. They've got to start acting now. So yes, I do believe Yellen when she says that she's going to move rates a couple of times next year and a couple of times the year after. Financial markets have not yet been convinced about this. And the reason for that is abundantly clear that they are not yet convinced that inflation will be responding, that they're not entirely sure that central banks will tighten policy simply because growth is picking up and unemployment's falling, that central banks will act on debt concerns. So there there is a gap between what's priced into the Fed's dots, what the markets are pricing in in terms of rate expectations. The other thing which I think is important is that we no longer should be talking about the Fed tightening because the ECB will be acting. The Bank of England will be acting The PBOC and the other Chinese regulators are already taking action to try to restrain debt growth in China. Japan is about the only country over the next year or two that looks like it won't be doing some form of monetary tightening. Again, almost scenario analysis for an investor. A central bank's going to get it wrong and inflation doesn't appear and debt sensitivity is rather higher than they thought. And actually, even a moderate degree of synchronised tightening by central banks around the world has more of an effect than they thought likely, possibility. Or the second, of course, is central banks realise that they're way behind on the inflation story. 
all of that academic discussion about what's the shape of the Phillips curve, will wages eventually respond to unemployment falling? Oh dear, it has. And central banks realise, particularly in the States probably, that they are behind the curve. Under either of those scenarios, bond markets are not correctly priced today. But that's the issue that we're all, of course, trying to address. How successful will central banks be in? It's a relatively wide path, but there's still extremes either side, as I've tried to describe, in what the path of interest rates and QT, quantitative tapering, as the jargon is now coming, instead of quantitative easing, will have an impact on markets. Very difficult to say what, for some markets, like the bond market, the impact will be. The academics can't work out what the impact of QE was on the 10-year bond yield. They can't work uh, out what it will be if we take it away. How it? should they? How should yeah. they? Uh, particularly, again, in the context of synchronised tightening across a number of countries, which I think is material difference from, say, the tapering worries under Bernanke a few ago. years ago. So they're treading a, a bit of a, a path through a potential minefield in one sense. They're, they're having to pick their way quite carefully through the next through period. But they are flagging up what they're trying to do. So then it is a question of, of as you say, how, how good their analysis is or how much better perhaps one should say the, the, the market's analysis is than the central bank's analysis is. If, if there is a problem, would you expect that to show up in the bond market first of all? Would that be where we'd see the first signs of something going a little bit astray? I think the bond market would be a, a very good canary in the coal mine, so to speak, because, it, of course, it is very sensitive to all of the aspects that we've been talking about. The difficulty, I think, will be that a number of the debt or balance sheet issues that are out there are not necessarily related to mainstream government bond markets. So the BIS and the Financial Stability Report of the Bank of England and other organisations like that have been warning about a number of issues in the global economy where perhaps balance sheets aren't in order, perhaps too much debt has been built up, perhaps the ability of a household sector or a corporate sector to respond, not just to a change in the cost of money, but the availability. availability. So senior loan officer surveys need to be looked at quite carefully for those able to to examine that sort of thing. The quantity of money in the sense of quantitative tapering different to quantitative easing, you know, the degree of liquidity being injected into financial markets will change. So it's not just the price of money, but the quantity of money will change. So whether it's Chinese debt, emerging market, corporate debt, perhaps household debt in, in certain parts of the world, that's probably where the signs are going to be seen. Perhaps Corporate profit margins in the United States is something that, that needs to be looked at carefully. But yes, the bond market, I think, will, will give a better steer going forwards because it's going to be manipulated far less by central banks than it has been in the last couple of years. So if I'm sitting here as an investor or as you're sitting there as, a, as an institutional investor, how should I think about what's going to happen in the next couple of years? I mean, do I need to be taking precautions against what might happen or do I need to be taking a particular view against one of those outcomes happening? Or should I just carry on as people seem to be doing, sitting where I am and uh, waiting for some sign that I should be doing something different? I think it very much depends on what sort of investor you are, how much of a process you have, what sort of timescale you're operating on and what level of risk you have. I think there is a considerable danger in being a momentum investor at this moment in time. Now, don't get me wrong, momentum investing has worked well for the last couple of years. Yes. Let's remember that the last couple of years has been one where central banks have deliberately reduced the discount rate, the interest rate. They've deliberately flooded markets with liquidity. That looks like it's going to change for the next two years. We're entering a different regime. Eight years since the last recession. Now, I'm not saying that the next recession is due in 2018, 19, 20, 
But the clock's ticking. With unemployment going down and down and down, one would eventually say that a turn is going to be seen in the unemployment cycle. That might be five years out still, but for any long-term investor, institutional investor, they've got to be planning this sort of thing. I mean, for the more sophisticated investor, I think scenario analysis is required. You've actually got to start thinking about under various different scenarios, how would my portfolio perform? For the more retail investor, I would say, do think very carefully about diversification. Do think very carefully indeed about trying to be too greedy in retail terms. Perhaps think a little more about the sustainability of a dividend yield, the sustainability of a bond yield. Don't think so much about the capital gain, the price earnings move. Think a little more perhaps about Well, why am I investing in this particular asset, class, company? What am I getting out of it? What's the income that I'm beginning to receive from this? And and can that be sustained going forwards? So a complicated way of answering what was a very difficult question. But I hope I provided some answers to it. You have indeed. Of course, there's another aspect of this which I think is interesting, which is a lot of people believe that one consequence of the kind of policy regime we've seen and the benign environment or the relatively uh, moderate growth environment we've seen, is that uh, valuations of things, everything seems to be quite expensive, basically. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have some concerns about trying to find the right place to invest the money when everything seems pretty expensive. So are you saying that in the current environment, valuations are understandable but okay, or would you rather say that they are on the high side of, of where you would like them to be anyway? Can I have both? You could have both. <laughs> understandable but okay. When one goes back to saying, what's the macroeconomic environment that we're currently in? Actually, relatively decent growth and certainly perfectly decent inflation on past history. Where are profit margins? Are central banks being very supportive? Do we see noticeable current account or financial sector imbalances that could quickly bring a recession or a major financial crisis? No. Then I think valuations are perfectly understandable. Many people, of course, do point to the United States, which is, you know, in a different league. When you look at Japan, UK, Europe, you know, it's difficult to say that the market as a whole is expensive. Certain sectors or companies might be. Even in the United States, it's very important to go sector by sector. I mean, the big driver, as everyone knows, of, of the US market in the last couple of years has been the technology stocks, yeah, a, Google, a, a, certain, a certain group. And indeed, the same, for example, in China, some of yeah. the other best performing emerging markets, it really is a tech play. So I'm not making a stock market valuation. I'm making a tech valuation story. And that comes down to do I think these oligopolies, monopolies will actually sustain their profits growth for a material period of time. Perhaps worth looking sometimes at the stock market ex-oil, the stock market ex-financials, and looking at those sorts of valuations to see what sort of picture it is against past history. I'm a simple investor at the best of times, and I'm saying to myself, what sort of profits growth is the world economy or the biggest markets creating at this moment in time? How sustainable does that look over, well, at least the next couple of years? And against that sort of backdrop, are valuations explicable? And, and here we have had a very decent improvement in profits growth in the, in the last 12 months or so. And running forwards, if you believe our models, if you believe the, the views of, of many of the academic economists out there, profits growth looks reasonable over the next couple of years. Now, the United States is a little more extreme, and that is why a number of investors would therefore wish to underweight the US against 
say, Europe and emerging markets, which is perfectly explicable. I think apart from that, I would say until there's a very sharp change in the growth inflation makeup, where there's a very sharp change in central bank policy making, or a number of the political issues that are out there are materially different. North Korea is an obvious example. Then yes, I think valuations can be sustained as long as profits growth is positive and reasonable. As soon as the profits begin to roll over, as soon as profit margins come under pressure, equity markets are expensive and can then move down quite a long way. Going back to my earlier point, therefore, what's the sustainability of the dividend? What's the sustainability of the total cash being given back to the shareholder? Are you worried about your share price falling 10, 20, 30 percent? Does it really matter as long as the income you're receiving from this asset is only going to move by arbitrarily just a few percent? Now, that assumes that investors are buying shares more for income than for capital gains. And that, of course, course depends on what sort of investor are you. Are you trying to build up a capital weighting or already starting to think about the income producing possibilities? So valuations are expensive. They're explicable. Be very careful about how far markets can fall in the next downturn. And if one takes a kind of broad view, global view about this, I mean, there's you hear people who say, well, profits, we know, are a function of revenues, costs and other items. But if we look at the other, all of those items, there is a view that with labour markets getting tight, the cost of labour is going to go up. Quite likely, interest rates will go up, so the cost of finance will go up. And possibly also governments, will, who are still short of money, will go look to raise taxes. And, and some people would say that's behind some of the political yep. moves we've seen in the last few years. Do you think that's a, a realistic threat, should I say, that th- those things will happen? That'll be how the change in profitability comes about. I, I think your analysis is spot on. And one does need to therefore think quite carefully about all the drivers. Wages picking up, either the regulatory threat or the tax threat, which a number of countries you know, are obviously examining. If the corporate sector's done so well, why don't I take some of that and give it back to the household sector is, is very obvious. I think there's two other points I'd just add, though. The first is... The possibility in America of tax cuts. Now, I said a little while ago that one can perfectly understand why on a valuation ground, someone might say, not quite sure I want to buy US assets. Apart from the fact there's every possibility of quite a noticeable tax cut by the Trump administration in 2018. But the political cycle is the Republicans probably have to do something noticeable before the midterm elections in November. So the current consensus thinking for what it's worth is that this winter, early spring, we will see tax cuts. Now, the figures might only be, say, a trillion dollars. It might only be 100, 150 billion a year. I mean, these are the sorts of numbers that are on the backs of paper because we've got no detail, really, about what they're planning to do. But all the analysis is this is not yet priced into the US stock market, beginning to be, but not yet. So it was before, but not now. <laughs> it was, was, it was immediately after Trump yes. came back out, perhaps beginning to be priced in. So taxes would be the first additional issue for you to think about. The second, and this is very geeky, jargony economist, it's productivity. So you're absolutely right. If wages start to pick up sharply, generally not good for profit margins. Can companies actually raise productivity? Either because at this point in the cycle, they're getting a lot more top line sales than costs growth, or because they actually start to invest in their workers through capital spending, software, hardware, whatever it is. There's a few early signs, actually, that the capital spending cycle business investment is beginning to respond to that synchronised upturn in the global economy I mentioned earlier. But still early days. 
The worry recently is that productivity growth for all countries, all the big economies around the world, has been getting weaker and weaker and weaker year after year, which is partly why global growth is so slow currently. Weak demographics, weak population growth, weak productivity ends up with this horrible stagnation that the OECD and other IMF-type economists have been worrying about for some time. Are we at a stage of the cycle where actually productivity can pick up in the latter stages of this cycle, delaying that squeeze on profit margins, actually restraining inflation as well, therefore, and preventing the central banks, hindering the central banks, delaying the central banks, actually tightening too quickly? So tax cuts in America, I would add to your list. Productivity growth in individual economies or globally, I'd add to your list. Otherwise, I think your analysis is spot on. Profit margins coming under pressure from taxes, from interest rates, from wages. That's the next phase of the cycle. Is it a rapid slowdown or a slow slowdown? The market currently is assuming it's a slow slowdown in profit margins coming under pressure. I mean, on the point of productivity, I, my experience over a number of years, is this is one of the areas where economists really don't have the answer. Nobody seems to have the answer. I yeah. remember, the, uh, the, the academic community has been looking at productivity in considerable detail over the last few years. This is a problem that now it is clear started well before the global financial crisis. It may be related to demographics. It may be related to generational shifts in, in technology coming on stream. It may be related to regulation. And there's a whole host of other excuses and explanations as well. But Animal the, spirits might be in there as well. Yeah. Absolutely. The net result is, though, that productivity growth in all the major economies around the world is materially different, slower, less than even 10, 15 years ago. And there's very few signs currently that it's improving. Now, in terms of future stock market returns, that's very worrying. This is why almost all the consultants, the academics, our company, when we do 10-year forecast returns, are generally suggesting that the returns over the coming decade are going to be a lot less than the last decade. And a lot of it comes down to a low growth, low inflation, low productivity world compared with, say, the 80s and 90s. And that's something that sadly just requires people, therefore, to save more, save more aggressively, save in different ways if they want to build up the capital sum they think they need, because the end result of low productivity is difficulties for investors. And also, I would suggest uh, another difficulty is that the consequences that leads to demand from a wide stretches of the population for governments to do something about it. But if you don't know what the cause is, it's unlikely that the governments will be able to solve that problem themselves. There's no magic wand yeah. you can wave to produce Absolutely. extra productivity across the whole yeah. globe yeah. when you don't even know why it's like yes. in the first place. Populism, if we use that word as a summary of the issues that you've just shorthand, addressed. Uh, shorthand, it covers yeah. a whole host of issues. But populism is something that really matters for financial markets. It matters for their regulation. It matters for the political environment that they're operating in. Populism is one of the drivers. There are many drivers of quantitative easing and why the interest rate structure is where it is at the present. If you're getting large swathes of the population who are saying, I don't think that the system is working, then financial markets are, will price that in, whether through individual companies or, or, or through the level of a stock market index now or, or going forwards. I think financial markets are very aware of the whole series of political risks that are out there. The difficulty, of course, is that no government yet has a very definite solution to these issues. Trump has won, Mrs May has won, Mrs Merkel has won, Mr Abe has won. Very little joined up thinking across the Western world, even amongst a number of the emerging markets, about what the solutions to these problems are. And indeed, there may not be a solution in the short term. 
Uh, perhaps another way of saying what you were saying before about the longer term outlook for investment returns is to say that at the moment, real interest rates are very low. Interest rates adjusted for inflation are very low. Indeed, they're negative in many places. And that, at least based on historical experience, is a very good predictor of what may happen over the next 10, 15 years. And, and the problem is that if, in order to get out of this world of negative real interest rates, one or two things have got to happen. Either inflation goes in one direction or interest rates go in a different direction. And there's very little prospect one can see of governments or indeed central banks being able to raise interest rates sufficiently large to get us back into positive real interest rate territory. Is that Would that be an analysis you'd share as well? In other words, that is the kind of constraint, which with the straitjacket in which we're operating. It's very difficult to see how, without some sort of crisis, we can get back to a world of positive real interest rates. I'm glad you used the word crisis in, in that sentence, because I think that is the answer, so to speak. Yes, I think we, we are in a straitjacket. I mean, one that, where there is still a decent amount of manoeuvre for investors to pick assets, pick countries, pick stocks. You know, it's not a very tightly binding straitjacket. But it is, as you say, very difficult for central banks. We we currently have about $10 trillion worth of government bonds with negative yields. About 20% or so of all government bonds in the world have a negative yield. And clearly that's got major problems for financial markets, the banking system being the most obvious, and distortions of capital flows around the world. Investors being forced out of certain assets into other assets simply to try to pick up a yield. Going forwards, can that interest rate structure change materially? Well, as you say, we need either material changes in productivity and growth rates, or we need material changes in inflation. And there seem to be a whole series of structural issues around the world keeping inflation low. I mean, you might say it's the gig and the Uber economy. You can certainly point to, say, high levels of unemployment still in Europe. You can point to a lot of excess investment, malinvestment in China and other emerging markets, exporting deflation in that sense. But I think we can also point to some of the technological changes that are taking place. Price discovery by households, by retail investors, by, uh, by companies is just materially different. The ability... Even 10, 20 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's no great surprise, for example, as online shopping takes off, that the prices of many goods in the high street are bid down with implications for financial markets. You know, the prices of, of a number of high street shops, Sears, Macy's in America, some of the UK brands, uh, uh, retail property, you know, suffering. But the net effect of this is a whole series of factors that are depressing inflation. I don't see that ending quickly. I mean, the, the percentage of online purchases in America, for example, is well behind the leaders like the UK and Korea. So I think for some time to come, these structural factors restraining inflation. So can central banks create inflation? Well, yes, ultimately they can, but only by using very, very different rules to what they've been thinking of recently. For those who wished to, there was a very, very good speech by Bernanke, from memory in 2002-2003, where he ran through the series of steps that the central bank would need to take to make sure that deflation did not appear in that country. When you run through the list, America has gone to at least number five, if not number six, in that list. The last of them, seven, is in effect helicopter money. Helicopter money. So in our parlance, it probably would be governments around the world issuing even more debt either for infrastructure-type projects or actually as a universal income, as welfare payments, as purchases for other assets rather than government bonds, which they've been buying recently. And the central bank, in effect, just inflating that debt that's being issued. Dangerous business. A very, very dangerous, which is why, of course, the central banks are absolutely 
clear they do not want to go down this path. They're desperate, the desperately hoping that simply a period of synchronised growth, normal recovery in wages as unemployment comes down, and we slowly but inexorably break out. But it is therefore a risk for the next cycle. Do we see even more use of negative rates? Do we see central banks buying even more assets apart from government bonds and a bit of corporate debt? What's the fiscal response? What's the regulatory response to the next downturn? Because there will be a downturn at some point in the next two, four, six, eight, ten years, whatever it is. You know, business cycles come. But with the degree of government debt, with the degree of private sector debt, with the overhang still of, of some of the depressing effects of the last financial crisis on the banking system, for example, in Europe, you know, the next crisis is not going to be pleasant. That's why central banks are continually trying to push it away in time. But we have to include that into our long-term thinking. That says nothing about how to invest in 2018. Yes, you still hold on to your equity markets because profits growth is good, but it certainly suggests for someone thinking about 2023, 2025, I need to start thinking about this. And in my discussions with sovereign wealth funds and long-term investments, investors, endowments, for example, that's exactly what they're beginning to think about. Can I also ask you about one other thing which you've mentioned in one of your recent publications, which is about the effect that all this political uncertainty, call it what you will, change, as we've seen in, in almost every uh, major country. It hasn't yet reached the point where, except perhaps some would say in America, the extremists have taken over the reins of government. But we have seen this, this substantial political shifts in all these countries responding to these pressures. And you've talked about how this actually influences the flow of capital around the world, which is very important. It's not the kind of thing that most people sit up, sitting in the UK think about. But of course it is. We are feeling the tremors of that even now. So what do you think has been happening there? And how does, how does that process work? And what does it mean for people? So in my thinking recently, I've been trying to picture and analyse a lot more. Where is global capital flowing? Now, there is a lot of global capital in the world. There's a lot of investors out there and they're looking for a home for their money. Particularly in Asia, I say. Particularly in Asia, but in America and Europe as well. And they've got several drivers, triggers. One, of course, is we've discussed it already at central banks. If central banks are taking so much action to reduce interest rates, then obviously that is a driver for some people. In a low-growth world, people look for growth stories. So we've seen growth stories. We saw Mr Abe, and that led to a growth story for Japan. Mr. Modi, the growth story for India. Mr. Macron, for a little while at least, a growth story for France. In a slow growth world, people look for growth opportunities if there's a good reform story. I think politics clearly can act. If you, if you think almost the analogy might be a riverbed and stones in the riverbed, and that diverts the flow of water, diverting the flow of capital. I think very clearly in America, there was a rush of capital into America as America picked up ahead of the election, and then particularly after the election, as people realised the Republicans were now in charge of all arms of government, and we might see a more pro-business friendly administration, capital flowed into America. And then it has flown out in the course of, of the last uh, six months or so, partly because the promises about fiscal spending, uh, fiscal change and, and regulatory change haven't been quite as... as sizable as, as perhaps was, was initially priced in, and partly because of a reassessment about Europe. You know, we, we shouldn't underestimate how Europe looks better now than it did. Europe looks better now, not just in terms of economic growth, but at least until the German election of last weekend, you know, Europe was seen as a bit of an area that was, was more politically stable. Now, again, perhaps the, the bloom is coming off that story uh, in, in, in various ways. And clearly Brexit, the referendum vote of last year, 
caused capital, at least temporarily, to be distorted. People were less interested in buying UK assets for at least a period of time, and Sterling, of course, plummeted. Adjusted accordingly. Adjusted yeah. on that. Yeah. So going forwards, one of the things I'm, I'm trying to understand better is where will the capital flow next? We can see several possibilities. One is, for example, into America, simply because of the tax cuts. And that would be associated with the rising US dollar, and yeah. what does that mean for commodity prices and emerging markets and ripple through that story? Mr. Abe, actually, if he wins the election handsomely in Japan, it's a possibility that might trigger a reassessment of Japan because it has been relatively underowned compared with some of the other big markets that are out there. So that could trigger a reassessment. And of course, Brexit either way or the other could trigger a positive or negative reassessment on UK assets more likely in terms of sterling and then that what that means for the FTSE 100 index, for example. So why has global capital been moving as it's been moving? How will quantitative easing, quantitative tapering change the interest rate structure and how is that going to alter the capital flows? How is the low growth story, but there's structural reform taking place in this country or that country, how's that going to change? And then how are political events and the perception of those political events, which is just as important, of course. Often what we're talking about here for investors is the story. American investors bought Europe after the Macron victory because Europe was seen as a much more stable place. Result, dollar-euro went up from, say, 110 to 120, and the ETF flows into European assets were very sizable. That looks like it's now pausing, at least, perhaps coming to an end. So politics can affect these flows around the world, particularly if we're talking about ETF-type, passive-type investments, mm. where people are just buying the index. It's, it's a short-term investment. I'm not going to be holding it for five, ten years. I may be holding it for a few quarters, and then I want to take my profits. It's a story. And it's, a story investment, yeah. it's a story. So how does QT, how does growth, changes in growth, how does politics affect these global capital flows? And we can already think of a few stories for 2017, 2018. I'm sure there'll be a few more that, that surprise us. And that's part of our job is to identify those shifts in global capital flows, see if they're sustainable and make sense. You know, the R baby assessment lasted several years. And should we take advantage of them? Yes, we did. And it was very profitable for our clients to do so. So something like what's happening in India would be another example where the initial impact of Modi being elected was very positive and there was a lot of capital flows. Then there was a period of sort of stabilisation and then there were issues about the implementation and now there seems to be a bit more positive again. But is that, that's the kind of thing that is moving money around the place. I think that's absolutely sums it up very well indeed. Of course, the more sophisticated investor will be trying to anticipate all of, of these. But for those who are perhaps just keeping up with the news, I think the cycle that you described is a very, very valid one. That initial sugar rush of enthusiasm the, oh dear, it's not quite as good as I thought. And then, well, actually, you know, they are still making some progress in these areas, complicated and detailed though it may be. I think that zigzag, which you just described, is a very good way of looking at a lot of these structural growth stories that are out there. The more sophisticated investor will be trying to dig more deeply or anticipate, of course. Before we go back to the interesting point about correlations and, and, and where, where to put your money, I mean, one of those interesting or important stories has been the commodity cycle, the oil price cycle in particular, which is very marked on the way up and on the way down. And now it's stabilized, but we're not quite sure where it's going next. And that's had a significant impact on, on the last couple of years in sort of relative uh, attractions of different countries, different regions, different types of company, that kind of thing. 
Do you have a view about that? I mean, about where we are now in the oil price cycle, particularly, but also in the broader commodity complex? And how does that fit into your world picture at the moment? I'm glad that you picked up oil in general and commodities in particular. I think there's a bit of a danger that people simply look at either oil or commodities now in terms of Chinese growth generally. And if Chinese growth is picking up, commodities must be doing quite well. And simply thinking in terms of global economic activity, because the big drivers of the oil price recently have been politics and technology. technology. Therefore, either an event, which was very difficult to forecast, or a technology which people knew about but didn't fully understand the implications. Fracking, obviously, is the technology that we're talking about. The ability of the US energy sector to turn oil from an individual expensive project by project into a manufacturing industry with productivity enhancements, which are mind boggling compared with past history, the way that the fracking industry is able to reduce the marginal cost of production year after year by, say, five, ten dollars, whatever it is is fundamental to understanding, at least for the next few years, why the oil price is where it is. But the other, of course, is politics, because one of the reasons why the oil price changed so dramatically from 100 plus to 20 to 30 was Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia overnight absolutely took a conscious policy decision that it was going to change the rules of the game. And when the rules of the game change, when the regulation of a market alters, market prices can change very, very dramatically. So Saudi changed and then, of course, more recently changed again because it realised that it could not continue with this policy of flooding the world with cheap oil, actually that the US fracking industry could catch up. And so now we have a fascinating balance where I think oil prices are probably still, say, in an arbitrarily 40 to 60 range. If it goes too low, there are problems for some of the fracking companies and problems, of course, for the fiscal balances of a number of oil producers. If oil goes too high, the fracking industry can turn on new supply remarkably quickly compared with the old days where it would take one of the big oil companies several years to respond. So I think we still are in a a band, but it is, as I admitted, a pretty wide band going forwards. And why are we at $60 today? Uh, Politics again, the story recently about Kurdistan and Turkey and the neighbours around there, but also estimates of what Chinese activity might be doing. So the oil price, one has to understand the structural issues, technology, the political issues, OPEC, Russia, Kurdistan, and then try to add on the normal supply-demand analysis of what's happening to US inventories. On its own, the oil price matters considerably. It matters not just for the profits of a large part of the stock market in many countries, UK in particular, but also the implications of changes in the oil price for capital spending. The capital spending cycle, not an actual economy-wide recession, but the manufacturing recession that we saw a year or two back was very, very largely related to this plunge in energy prices and the implications that had for such a large segment of the world economy. Going forwards, I would hope that we just end up with a rather more stable oil price. But very clearly, if oil prices do move materially out of my 40 to 60 estimate, the implications for inflation, the implications for central bank responses and the implications for some of the stock market profits will be very, very different to what the market's currently pricing in. We've sort of gone around the world and looked at some of the big issues affecting there. Let's come back to two things. First of all, 
the point you mentioned about stock markets and correlations, I mean, that's very interesting because what struck me, though, is in theory, this ought to be, as you said, good for active management. And yet we know that it's been a very bad period for active management in the last 10 years anyway. But 2017 is already shaping up to be somewhat different. And I suppose everybody who's in the active management business will be very happy to, if that is indeed the case. So does that mean, though, that you think that this flood of money we've seen into passive investment, into index funds and into ETFs as well, though they're slightly different beasts, do you think that has just been just a product of the environment we've been in? Or is there actually, as the proponents of passive management would suggest, you know, it's a better way of doing business for many people? It's sitting where you're sitting, how do you uh, answer that question? I don't like either or. I prefer and. I have never been against passive investing in any sense of the word. For many investors out there, particularly ones with relatively small amounts of money, they need to keep their costs down because costs, fees and expenses are a very dangerous threat to any investor trying to build up a pot of money over time. You do need to keep costs down or you need to get good returns versus the costs of the investment is perhaps a more subtle way of trying to describe. If we're going into a low return environment, even more important to keep your costs down, you could argue. Absolutely. No problem with that at all. I think um, perhaps for the core of your investment portfolio or an easy way perhaps of investing in, in something that's a bit difficult to understand, I have no difficulty with any form of passive There were a lot of arguments in favour of active investing, but it's what you are actively investing in that matters. So a simple example, perhaps. A few years ago, a country called Greece was in trouble. So do I passively want to buy the entire European stock market index, knowing that I am also therefore buying a country that is in particular trouble, or Latin America and Brazil, for example? As an active investor, I should be able to pick and choose far more. There are certain asset classes which are very difficult to invest in passively. I mean, fixed income is not yet as available as many of the equity markets are, for example, in terms of passive investing. If I believe in socially responsible investing, environmental and social governments, I'll probably be wanting to prefer some sort of of active approach. I may want to invest in investment trusts rather than unit trusts because I'm saying to myself, I actually want to a board of directors, board of trustees that are overseeing my investment on my behalf, as opposed to the unit trust vehicle. Perhaps I want to invest more in frontier markets, emerging markets, small cap investing, areas where theoretically, and actually, I think also in practice, markets are just far less efficient, far fuzzier, far less certain. And therefore, active investing, I think, has historically shown an advantage. So I would say I'm an and person. I'm very happy indeed to say I've got some of my investments personally, and I would recommend in passive and some of my investments personally in active. I think the last point from an asset allocation or strategies point of view would be timing. There are certain times in the cycle where there's quite sharp dispersion between how markets are moving, between stocks are moving. And at that point, you do want active. There are also points in the cycle where you just want to get in or get out. So theoretically, in a bear market, You just want to get in. You can decide exactly what to buy in a little while, but just get into the market. Look, it's cheap. After the bear market, not before the bear market. Well, during the course of the bear market. During the course of the bear market. The the, the old adage is, you know, buy when there's blood on the streets. Um, Rothschild, I think, uh, or one of those, one of our listeners will, will tell us. And at that point, you should just be getting into the market. And also at the end, it's when the valuations are extensive when your cab driver is telling you the last stock that he bought, when everyone is saying, oh, it is different this time, 
oh no, the next interest rate increase is not going to matter. And at that point, you've got to start thinking of how am I going to exit the market? And it may be rather easier to do that through a cheap passive vehicle than a more expensive and perhaps less liquid active vehicle. So that's my views on active versus passive. Think of and. Think of them as different building blocks in the portfolio and the proportion to put into each will change over time. But active investors and passive investors have both got to do what it says on the tin. If you look at a passive emerging market fund, you can end up with very, very different performance because it's investing in different things. And just in the same way as an active investor may be benchmark hugging or actually very, very focused, unconstrained, small portfolio, understand what you're buying. Obviously, if you're on a risk-on, risk-off market, passive is the easiest way to jump around from one to the other. We were there before, but we're not there now. And what is this research you've done about correlations? I mean, can you say a bit more about that? First of all, what, is it, what, have you, what did you find? And secondly, what actually is it telling us? I think it's going back to the, the macro environment, especially the, the central bank activities. So a couple of years ago, let's remember that to all intents and purposes, the marginal investor around the world was simply saying to themselves, what's the Fed going to do next? What's the direction of US bond yields? What's the direction of US dollar? And the correlations were pretty much one, so to speak, not just within a stock market index, but within a whole series of asset classes. And if you got these cycles right, didn't pretty matter pretty much what you bought, everything was moving the same way, or things were moving completely diametrically opposite each other at the same time, risk on risk off, as, as it was called. I think what's interesting now is that the central banks are obviously giving different signals the global economic environment is very different. I can now make a story to buy Japan, to buy China, to buy Brazil, to buy Europe, to buy the UK, to buy America. And we're beginning to see a lot more dispersion within sectors. And if you think, we've just talked about the oil sector affected by the issues we've just talked about. The financial sector now very simply responding to the shape of the yield curve. Our interest rates moving and the financial sector as a whole We'll be moving on the back of that. Technology related to the tech cycle. Consumer staples largely related to uh, emerging market demand, for example. High street retail related to online threats and such like. We can run through the sectors and they're now being driven by a series of different individual idiosyncratic factors. That I think is leading not yet to a lot of dispersion, but it is leading to some dispersion between how companies and sectors are performing and therefore how different stock markets are, are performing. Currency is also becoming a bit more important. I mean, if you think the FTSE 100 and the yen topics correlations are you know, now very noticeable indeed, you're almost buying a currency rather than a stock market. Right. Other markets, you know, America would be a prime example, are really not being affected by currency moves much at all. And so again, in, in that, I'm beginning to say, do I want to buy a currency-related or more domestically insulated market? So more dispersion taking place. And from a statistical point of view, that's leading to changes and correlations between assets and within different uh, measures of, of, of stock market concentration. And on the broader point, investors are still pretty cautious, right? I mean, as far as one could tell from general investment services, you don't just look at the prices, you look at the sentiment indicators. Investors are cautious. We, we can actually begin to show that through some of the survey and flows evidence which we've been looking at. There are monthly surveys of fund manager positions, and those generally show that cash levels are high above right. average. 
So I think that makes perfect sense against the backdrop of the political uncertainty that, that we've talked a little about, you know, Korea and Trump and, and what's happening in Europe and South China Sea and Russia, Ukraine. Against that sort of uncertainty, let alone the normal uncertainty of the business cycle, fund managers are generally holding on to a bit more cash. Therefore, this doesn't yet suggest its end cycle because that cash can be put to work as and when investors are convinced that, yes, profits growth can continue, this economic recovery can be sustained, central banks will not be making early policy errors. That cash can be put to work and therefore this recovery can continue for a little while. Well, let's hope that's the case. I think I can't let you go there without, although you're a global equity strategist, asking you something about Brexit and what actually you you feel about that as an investor, as a, somebody who works in Scotland, someone who uh, whatever works in the financial services business. What do you think is going to happen and how is it going to play out? And, and at the moment, the markets seem to be very complacent about it. They, they think that some sort of deal will be worked out. There may be a transition agreement. Common sense will prevail. You know, everybody will get together at the end of the day. There's an interest on both sides to have a to have some sort of deal which may or may not look particularly different from what we've had before. That seems to be the market view. Is, is that is that right? Is that how you see things? Or, or but How much risk is there in that scenario not happening, should we say? I think there's considerable risk in, in that scenario not happening because we are dealing now with a political story, an economic story, and a market story involving a large number of countries. If the UK was very sure politically about what it wanted from Brexit, that might help. But, but it's not. N- none, yes. none of the parties have... Seemed to know exactly what they want, exactly, or prepared to say what they want. Yeah. And Europe doesn't actually know what it wants because Europe doesn't know where it will be in three, five, seven years' time. We read Mr Macron's speech over the weekend, and that's one view, and Mr Juncker has another view, but the FTB in Germany has another view, and the prime ministers of Hungary, Poland, have very different views as well. It's extremely uncertain as to what Europe's going to look like in a few years' time. The political debate is intense. From an economic point of view, I think it is a little clearer. During this period of uncertainty, one would expect the UK economy to be growing more slowly than it has in the past. Business and consumer confidence looks to be a little lower. The willingness to invest in big-ticket items, cars, houses, companies, investing looks to be a little lower. And against the backdrop of a central bank that wants to do some moderate tightening and a very constrained chance of the exchequer, the the easiest course, as the economics community has been suggesting, is moderately lower economic activity. And that clearly feeds through into the third point, which is the market aspects of all of this, which is clearly for many domestically related companies in the UK, they've got to take this into account. Certain sectors, financial services, aircraft, pharmaceuticals also have to sector by sector try to work out what's the Brexit outcome going to be and what does that mean for the profits. So in the financial services sector, how many jobs do we need to move to Amsterdam or Dublin? What sort of licenses do we need to operate in Italy and Austria and and that sort of thing? But of course, a very large part of the UK market is actually overseas related. The FTSE 100 index on its own is a very good proxy for the global stock market, if you add in a bit of tech, because it is just so influenced by global issues, global factors. And therefore, the correlation between sterling and the stock market is very clear. And sterling, of course, therefore, does depend on how overseas investors decide, are they going to buy some more UK gilts, UK property, UK companies? 
We have a current account deficit. That means we need more capital each year from overseas investors. If they decide not to buy, we see the sterling plunge after Brexit. If they get rather more reassurance, as they have in the last few weeks, either on the Bank of England or on some sort of transitional agreement, as you pointed out, sterling moves up very sharply indeed. And that ripples through, therefore, the entire equity market structure. Politically, extremely uncertain. Yes, some form of transitional agreement eventually leading to some sort of Canada-Swiss-Norway-style relationship with Europe looks the most likely outcome. The risks in March 19 of some disaster happening, unfortunately very high indeed, because we have so many people who will need to vote on this. And let's not forget how Wallonia, the Walloons, stopped the Canadian free trade agreement single-handed. Now, that didn't matter very much for the Canadian economy, but in March 2019, it will matter significantly for the UK economy. So the politics we can try to understand. The economics, I think, are relatively clear as long as there are no very sizable shocks to business or consumer confidence, either from events in Europe or from the outcome of the negotiations. I think the, the stock market and currency situation is quite easy to analyse. That doesn't to say we can forecast it correctly, but we can understand the relationships between what overseas investors and domestic investors are doing and saying about the prices of UK assets as far as Brexit's concerned. End result, we're neutral to slightly underweight UK assets. We see more downside risks than upside risks. But against the vast swathe of political uncertainty that's out there, The last thing we want to do is to be extremely underweight or extremely overweight UK assets because the political uncertainty is so great, as Mrs Merkel found over the weekend with an election result which she would have preferred not to have seen. And that suddenly changes the whole view about the makeup of Europe during the course of these Brexit negotiations. What will it be like after the Italian elections in March next year? So moderately underweight UK assets as a whole, but not wanting to take an extreme position because of the political uncertainty. Well, on that note, Andrew, thank you. We've had a very thorough discussion of many, many topics. I'd like to thank you very much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure. If I may end with one point, anyone who wishes to follow our material, please have a look at our website. Please have a look at our monthly Global Outlook publication. It's the opportunity for me occasionally to give some extra thoughts about what's going on in the world, but all of my colleagues in the company and also how we're currently positioning our client money, which particular assets we like, don't like or so. So for any of those who have the time, if I if I may just give a small plug at the end, Global Outlook, our monthly magazine on our website, and that'll tell you a lot more about how we're thinking about the world. We hope you enjoyed this Moneymakers podcast. Our podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on a variety of podcast channels, including SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and also Share Radio's platform. The podcasts are free. If you want to find out more or listen to some of the earlier interviews in the series, please go to our website, www.money-makers.co, or follow us in future on any of the channels just mentioned. Thank you for listening.